Okay, well, I'm actually very, very passionate about this topic. This is actually my favorite workshop because I've spent about 10 years, about 10 or 12 years of my life working in higher education, studying young adults, working with young adults, writing about young adults, and um, often we get kind of caught up in behaviors of people, right? So when we're working with people, we're teaching people, we're supervising them, we often are kind of focusing on the things that they do and say that frustrate us. And we can get very caught up in and just the nitty-gritty details of everyday life. And so while I do a lot of sessions on, you know, kids and technology, which I did earlier today, or managing millennials and that type of thing, building a team, this really presents the 40,000-foot view of what's going on that can help give some context to these other nitty-gritty little pieces, okay, that are on the ground, some of the clashes in the team building. So this is, are you ready to buckle in, go up to the 40,000-foot view, okay? (laughs) So hopefully some of you in the room like history, because I'm going to talk about history just for a minute, because I think, you know, if you don't learn about history, then you're doomed to repeat it. And history has so many great lessons for us. I was actually, I drove up from North Carolina, um, because I had, I was doing some events in Steubenville, is that how you say it? Okay, yesterday, and then I drove over here last night and then I'm driving home today. So, I mean, lots of car time, right? So, I was, like, listening to history CDs, stories of the American Revolution, and the ratification of the Constitution. I'm a real nerd, okay? The ratification of the Constitution and James Henry and Patrick Henry, or James Madison and Patrick Henry's whole dispute, okay, over the ratifying the Constitution. And I had just listened to the Republican debate, and I was like, you know... Some things just never change. They don't, okay? So I'm like, we, we get all panicked about, you know, a debate and how it's going. But, you know, it was pretty bloody back in 1781, too. You know, nothing is new under the sun. So I just feel like history is so soothing to me and that we've survived. And we'll continue to survive. So um, when we look at millennials, trends, what's happening in our culture right now, It's important to understand that what's happening in America is a seismic shift, okay? We often get caught up in the nitty-gritty details of what this looks like when we're trying to manage volunteers or, you know, millennials or we're navigating our kid who's addicted to their iPad. But underlying all of that, there's a fundamental change that's occurring in our country, in our culture. And so while there's generational issues at play, there's also a huge cross-cultural element at play. And it's normal and natural, On fault lines, we can expect activity, right? Okay, and we're in the middle of the earthquake right now. So just hang on, buckle up. If you feel like things are falling down around you, well, they might be, okay? But they can be rebuilt. So when we look at history, we know that every two, three hundred years, there are cultural upheavals and shifts that occur. So if you look back in Western civilization a couple of hundred years ago, we had something called the Age of Reason, the Enlightenment, the Industrial Revolution. Okay, if you look back a couple hundred years before that, you had the European Renaissance and Protestant Reformation. If you keep going back, you see major shifts like the Great Schism, when uh, the church, the Roman Catholic and Eastern Orthodox Church split. You go back to the fall of the Roman Empire, you know, and things that occurred in that season. So there's these times in history where these seismic shifts occur that reorder the way that a society functions. Well, the way that American culture has functioned since its inception, you know, when James, Henry, or, or James Madison and Patrick Henry duked it out a couple hundred years ago, has been based on the ideas of these two periods. Okay? Back here, what was really significant was the printing press and how it suddenly made information available to the general population, including, you know, then the Protestant Reformation and the Scripture. And then fast, forward, for, uh, fast forwarding a couple of hundred years, you have... The age of reason, the enlightenment, which suddenly gave us a lot of faith in things like science and logic and reason to solve our problems, okay? We're going to do away with violence. We're going to do away with hunger. We're going to do away with disease. We're going to figure these things out. We're going to solve them logically. And how has that worked out for us? (laughs) Okay? And then we're like, the industrial revolution, we're going to make things faster, more efficient, We're going to have greater productivity, right? We're going to get these systems down so that everything is just running like clockwork. Okay? And we did that, right? Okay? And how has that worked out for us? Well, really good in a lot of ways, but has it been perfect? No. Okay? 
We've realized that sometimes, yes, we have enough food now to feed a lot of people, but there's still people starving. And on top of that, we're producing that food in ways that are maybe causing us other health issues, right? So well, things are great, there's always consequences that are unexpected. So what happens is after a couple hundred years that we realize one way is maybe not perfect, it's the natural human response, right? We try to figure out, okay, how do we make things work better? So now, fast forward a couple hundred years, 1900s, you had people like Friedrich Nietzsche at the end of you know, the 1800s who started to talk about ideas that are postmodern, what we call postmodernism now. And it took you know, a number of decades, as these things began to be discussed in academia and whatnot, for them to start to boil down into popular culture. And I like to blame the boomers. Okay? <laughs> so it was really the 60s and 70s when the boomers you know, led you know, a lot of cultural revolution that ideas of postmodernism were ushered into popular culture. And so as those ideas began to get ushered into popular culture, they began to influence media and um, education and all these things in the 70s and 80s, and millennials were born in the 80s, right? So I like to call millennials our first generation of postmodern natives, the first generation to grow up in a society that is adopting these views, these worldviews, these perspectives that are radically different than previous generations. So while that often boils down to behaviors and attitudes in the workplace and our families that can be frustrating, it's good to understand that this is part of a larger scale transition that's happening. So you had ideas like deconstruction, relativism, post-structuralism that have all informed a lot of the mindsets that lead to things that we understand as like tolerance, right? Where all ideas are being accepted as equal, equal and val- um, valid. Okay, so let's just look a little bit, because when we talk about the church community, one of the ways where this really affects us is how we understand truth. Because the whole point of the church is helping people understand that he is the way, the truth, and the life, right? That's our whole mission. Well, what's happening is, in this cultural transition that's happening, the way that we perceive truth as a culture is drastically and radically changing. Under modern mindsets, driven again by the age of reason, we had confidence in reason to reveal truth. We believed that if we could come up with an airtight apologetic, okay, we could convert our coworker. Okay, you have the four spiritual laws, the Romans road, you had the truth project, all these things that are built on reason and logic, right? We're going to create an airtight argument for why scripture is true. Millennials don't care, (laughs) okay? They've been taught to accept self-determined pluralistic truths, okay? I was talking to someone who's in a doctorate program at the University of Minnesota, and they're telling me one of their professor's jobs is to teach kindergarten teachers how to teach that in kindergarten, that all truths and perspectives are equal, that what is respectful is to accept everyone's truth as being equal, right? So when we look at ministering to young people, one of the big challenges we're facing is that they have been taught culturally, they've been taught that you have to accept all truths as being equal. Well, that makes it really hard for even Christian young adults coming out of strong Christian homes to say, this is a truth that I believe. Because in saying this is the truth that I believe, you suddenly are saying other truths are wrong. Okay? So, or this is the truth that is correct or right. Reliance on reason and logic versus reliance on experience and emotion. So often we're still trying to convince people in our culture about faith based on reason and logic, but people are making their decisions based on emotion and experience. You see this even in the courtroom. If you watch how we're developing arguments, people are using story and emotion, not logical argument anymore. Okay, So this is, this is affecting every aspect of our culture. We're going from structured and hierarchical. Okay, that industrial revolution, Taylorism, if you're familiar with that at all, where Taylor, he measured every movement that people made to see how much faster they could, you know, at the factory lines, do things so we could become as efficient as possible. And we've created hierarchies and structures that help make us as efficient and as productive as possible. We've done it in the church. We've done it in our homes. We've done it in our schools, right? And really, the new postmodern perspective is more organic and open. It's messy. Things are moving. There's always moving parts. We've gone from creating things to questioning things, 
deconstructing them. What is working? What is not working? Okay, you hear young people all the time asking why, why, why? Objectivity, things that are black and white versus subjectivity, things being very, very gray. I remember some of you may have heard me, I shared this, I think, story last year, but I was working at North Central. We were sitting in a committee meeting. There was a student representative. There was a number of faculty, and you know faculty, they feel things strongly. <laughs> okay, so these faculty, they got into a heated debate over something. I don't even remember what it was, but I mean, it was almost coming to blows. They were feeling quite passionate about it. Well, I mean, this is a Christian school, right? So I'm watching the student going, oh my goodness, like this student's watching these professors who she respects, like going at it. So she got up and walked out the end of the meeting. I ran after her. I'm like, okay, how are you doing? What did you think about the meeting? And she just kind of looked at me with a stunned look on, my face, on her face, and I was like, oh, no. She's like, I don't feel strongly enough about anything to argue that passionately. My world is so gray. She used those exact words. My world is so gray. Like, I, I don't have any convictions that are so strong. She was so impressed to see people who felt that strong about things, okay? Having an individual responsibility to truth versus truth being defined in the context of a community. This is huge, okay? So instead of feeling that personal responsibility for many things, okay, we experience this in the workplace and in many contexts where young people don't seem to take personal responsibility for things, that's because they've been raised in collaborative education models where you got points just for participating and working together, not necessarily for producing something. And so as a result, that, that carries into our faith. Our faith gets defined based on the input of people around us, not necessarily on our own personal conviction. And so we define truth based on the feelings and views of our community. Okay, any questions on this slide before I move on or comments? Mm -hmm. It is to an extent, but in, in, many, in, in community-based cultures, there's a sense of responsibility to the other people that my, I have to change my behavior for the good of the whole. And the way it's playing out with millennials in America is everybody can do what they want and we're just going to respect each other. So I'm not necessarily, I may change my viewpoints, but I don't necessarily change my behavior. Um, I can still have my individual rights, but in the context of the community, I'm still considering the input of other people. Okay, so it's a little, there's still some individualism. It's, so it's kind of a messy mix. But yeah, that's a good question. Yeah, go ahead. Is there like a leader in the community? Um, <laughs> you know, when they have, um, so yeah. my girls are litter, they did the group project. Yeah. So somebody had to step up yeah. to make sure it was going to get done because everybody else was free. Yeah, yeah. I'm just here participating because I'm going to get a grade, mm -hmm. but they had to get the project done. Yeah, um, yeah, there is, I mean, the thing, though, is leadership is viewed very differently, okay? Because remember, in um, millennials value relationships and leadership. And so leadership, and, and they're an uploading generation, not a downloading generation, okay? So our traditional view as leadership is kind of if you're the leader, you're going to step up, take responsibility. You're going to download to people their, you know, responsibilities. You're going to move us forward, okay? More of a millennial mindset of leadership is more empowering other people people so kind of uploading what do you want to do what do you think blah blah blah. what you know so it's a more of a participatory so yes someone does people do but it's more of a collaborative leadership model in many cases um, because leadership looks different to them yeah that's a good question okay so here's really the world as we've known it okay this is the world as it has become and this is true on many many levels so i like to um Let's just go through a few quotes. One is, I uh, talked about Friedrich Nietzsche, okay? He had made this quote over 100 years ago. You have your way, I have my way. As for the right way, the correct way, the only way, it does not exist, right? And so um, that is the idea that really is foundational to our new cultural worldview. All things are up for grabs in many ways. So when you think about this model, right, it's chaos, and yet, there's beauty in this chaos, okay? There are a lot of good things that are emerging from this chaos. So I want to um, talk about that. Okay, <laughs> here are some quotes. When we talk about logic and truth, uh, a professor at the University of California, truth is produced and not found. 
because if all truths are equal, pluralistic, we can accept all views as being equal, right? And so we produce truth, people accept that as truth. No right or wrong answer exists when values are at stake. Okay, nearly two-thirds of U.S. adults say that whether something is right or wrong depends on the situation, while a third say there are clear and absolute standards for what is right or wrong. So already two out of three adults in America kind of would be bought into the new, under the new mindset, okay? Um, so when you think about those charts, the hierarchy and the interdependence, okay, those, those are unfolding, I mean, they're unfolding on so many scales. So here's one that illustrates, uh, a quote that illustrates how it's unfolding on a global scale. Okay, this is General Stanley McChrystal. He wrote his book, Team of Teams. Have any of you read it? Great book, highly recommend it. He talks about this dynamic of how our world is changing, okay, from the hierarchy to the organic. But he talks about Iraq in 2003, 2004, which is fascinating to me because my husband was there on two different deployments during that time. And he's like, yes, this is absolutely true. The speed and interdependence of events during that time in Iraq had produced new dynamics that threatened to overwhelm the time-honored processes and military culture we built, he writes. Okay, when you think about groups like Al-Qaeda, the Taliban, ISIS, okay, who are running circles in many ways around established military powers, okay, why is that? Because the Russians, the British, the Australians, the Americans have military structures that are those big clunky hierarchies, right? Top-down leadership. These networks function like this. So as soon as the big clunky hierarchy gets over here to squash, you know, this terrorist network, they've popped up over here and over here and over here. And so... That's just one way where this, this dynamic of change is happening on a global scale in so many different contexts. Um, here, Nicholas Carr has this quote. Again, the, uh, the Shallows is another great book talking about how our minds are changing. Okay? As a result of technology, this is not just perspectives and, and organizations, but it's affecting the very, our very minds. For the last five centuries, ever since the printing press made book reading a popular pursuit, the linear literary mind has been at the center of art, science, and society. As supple as it is subtle, it's been the imaginative mind of the Renaissance, the rational mind of the Enlightenment, the inventive mind of the Industrial Revolution, even the subversive mind of modernism. But it may soon be yesterday's mind. Okay, what research is showing is that technology and the way that we're uh, inputting information is rewiring the way we think. So in his book, The Shallows, he actually gives examples of uh, college professors who are like, I struggle to sit down and read through an entire book, right? Because we're getting used to this, where we can just click on an article, read part of it, then click on another link and go over here, and then we click over here and we watch a video and blah, blah, blah. In our mind, we're taking information in short bursts that are constantly moving. And so our minds are starting to lose the capacity to read a war and peace or a tale of two cities, okay? Because we're, not, we're losing, it's a, our brain is a muscle, right? If you don't exercise it, you lose ca capacity. And so the ability to think in a linear, straight process, is starting, we're starting to lose it. So, um, so there's so many ways that this change is affecting us. Okay, questions on that before I kind of delve into the next. Yeah, who, who was the author of Teams? Uh, uh, General McChrystal. Okay. So a lot of this can feel really overwhelming, right? It's like the world is changing. How do we, like, navigate all of this? Like I told you, we're sitting on a fault line, and it's shaking. It's moving. But I actually feel like for the church, there's some incredible opportunities here. So I love this verse. This has kind of become one of my theme verses in my life the last couple of years that I've been researching this because it talks about a shaking, right? Hebrews 12. At that time, his voice shook the earth, but now he has promised, yet once more I will shake not only the earth, but also the heavens. This phrase, yet once more, indicates the removal of things that are shaking, that is, things that have been made, in order that things that cannot be shaken may remain. Let us be grateful for receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken. So today, in some of my other workshops, you know, I've been talking with ministry leaders who are like, okay, how do some of these changes actually impact the way we do ministry? And the thing is, is that a church always adapts, adapts to its cultural context. That's what it's supposed to do, right? 
because we express our faith through our cultural norms. That's not bad. I was a mission. I was a missionary kid, so I grew up experiencing different ways of worshiping God and expressing faith. Culture can inform those things. Okay, I love dancing and waving flags. Okay, which is what we do in Latin America. Okay, but we don't. You know, if I do it in my home church, now they think I'm crazy. Okay, but I love that embracing the cultural expression of my faith. Okay, because different cultures are different. The American church has very much adapted to its cultural context. And when you think about America as a country, the Industrial Revolution, the Enlightenment, the Age of Reason were all part of the, the like momentum for birthing America as a country, right? It was some of the, those questionings and those hopes that actually led us to creating this country. But as a result, this country has only ever known one cultural worldview, essentially. We've kind of always functioned under that really solid modern mindset because that's what we that's what birthed us. So as a result, our businesses, our families, our communities, and our churches have all reflected these modern mindsets. Now, the beautiful thing is that it was the modern era was an era of creation, right? Versus deconstruction. <laughs> okay, so we're very committed to building things and creating things, but in the process. We've created a lot of things that maybe we've made. Sometimes we've made them. You know, and God worked through them and God has used them, but maybe it's a point where it's something we've created that God has maybe got a new wineskin or a new way of doing something. So he's kind of shaking things. And a lot of the things, we're having trouble recruiting millennial volunteers, right? We're having trouble um, maintaining the programs that we've used to. Millennials are not funding building projects. Okay, there's a lot of things that are going. Oh no, the sky is falling. Okay, because millennials are not—they don't even know if they believe in absolute truth. Okay, millennials are not pew warmers. Okay, they don't believe it. They're not going to sit there. They're not going to do it. There's some really great things. They're questioning why do we do things the way we do them? Are these programs the most effective? Can we do things differently? And they are disengaging from many of our churches. Doesn't mean that they're disengaging from a pursuit of God. Okay? So God is allowing things to be shaken so that the things that are no longer effective, the things that we've instilled that he's used but are no longer useful can be shaken off. So the things that God has for the body for the next 50 to 100 years can remain. And the beautiful thing in this shaking season is that we're still shaking, okay? The cement is still wet. Things are still setting. And so there's room for us to guide things in a way that may impact us for the next 50 to 100 to 200 years as our culture kind of decides what it's going to become and what it's going to be. So it can be a really, really exciting season, but also a very scary and kind of disorienting season. I like these two quotes because they kind of give perspective to what's happening, okay? Chesterton says, tolerance is the virtue of a man without convictions. And as we live in a culture right now where tolerance is widely spread, what's happening is that there has been a decrease in a sense of conviction. And I believe that's what happens as a result of that is <clears throat> we've had a lot of Christians who can give you all the Sunday school answers, right? They sit in the pews. They can give you Sunday school answers. But sometimes their life is not being lived out of conviction, And so as tolerance, tolerance is going to shake people who do not have conviction out of the pews because it is real. There is social persecution that is already happening, especially with young people, and it's going to continue to grow. But what it does is it's the pew warmers aren't going to stick around if it's uncomfortable, okay? And people have to decide, am I on God's team or am I not on God's team? Do I believe in truth or do I not believe in truth? And it's really hard to sit on the fence when it's no longer cool to be a Christian, when you no longer live in a Christian culture, when you are viewed as intolerant, okay, to be a Christian. So there's some really, really good things that can happen. I remember hearing of a a Chinese pastor who said to a, a group that my sister was a part of, you Americans are always praying for us in China because of the persecution. He's like, stop praying that we would not be persecuted. We do not want to be like you. You know, and it's like God is using this because the people who are like, this is what I believe. It only reinforces what you believe when that gets called into question. Right. It like fires you up. I'm like, okay, devil, 
You want to fight? Okay. Let me get. Let's let's fight. Okay. You know, I just get my I just get my like battle on. You know, I like want to strap on my sword and and go to battle. Okay. But if but if you're not serious about it, then you're not going to stick around. Okay. So it's fine. It's fine. Truth has ceased to be a relationship between a statement and reality, and it has become a judgment. So when you speak truth and you say what you're doing is wrong, we're often labeled as judgmental, right, in our culture. Okay? It's not, wait, if you do that, here's the reality of your life. You know, here are the consequences. But it's become a judgment, and it's just, it's the father of lies who are blind people. But the spirit of truth, the spirit of truth is not trembling at this. Amen? Okay? So we have to remember this. God is not shocked. God is not panicked. God used Nebuchadnezzar. God used Cyrus. God used, God has used crazy, crazy things in the past, okay? Um, people get panicked about the election. I am not panicked about the election. I'm very intrigued, okay? God, God, God puts kings in their place and removes them, Daniel 2.21, okay? God is going to put into, in charge whoever he wants in America. I don't have to be freaking out about it. Okay? And he's going to use it to build his church. So let's just make sure we're on the right train. Okay? Because sometimes what we do is we get caught up. We get caught up in the building that's actually going to fall off the, the cliff in this earthquake. Get out of that building. Okay? Get on higher ground. Okay? Don't hold on to the building. Okay, the building served a purpose. The building was good. We used the building while it was here. But know what? That building's falling off the cliff now, and there's higher ground for us to run to. Get out of the building and run to higher ground. Okay? The things, therefore, let us be grateful for receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken. Amen? Okay, so let's run to the place that cannot be shaken. And we are going to be fine. Hallelujah. I'm excited. And I have two three-year-olds, and some days I just panic because I'm like, dear God, what world are they going to grow up in? And then I'm like, Lord, they're going to be Daniel. They're going to be Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. And it doesn't matter if everyone else bows. Dear God, they're not going to bow. They're not going to bow. Okay? And the king of the land is going to say, their God is the only true God because they do not bow. And that is our task to raise up this generation, the remnant of this generation that he's calling to be what I call a Daniel generation. Amen. I believe that we are witnessing a new reformation that is transforming the way Christianity will be experienced in the new millennium. This reformation, unlike the one led by Martin Luther, is challenging not the doctrine, but the medium through which the message of Christianity is articulated. Restructuring the organizational character of institutional religion, democratizing access to the sacred by radicalizing the Protestant principle of the priesthood of all believers. Now, that is a mouthful, okay? Let's break this down for a minute, okay? Because I had someone come up to me today and say, okay, if millennials are all about this relationship and, you know, engaging and blah, 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 and small groups. How do I get enough small group leaders? I don't have enough small group leaders for groups of three. I have to have groups of 20. I'm like, but they're not connecting in groups of 20. You know, that is not going to work for them. So you've got to figure out, uh, well, I cannot create a structure. I'm like, that's the point. Okay? New models of ministry that are not going to fit our old structures. I'm like, you don't need a team of 10 people who are qualified. You need a church of however many people are in your church who are qualified. Okay? A priesthood of believers. When you have a priesthood of believers, the church functions without a structure, a man-made structure, right? So this is what happened in the New Testament. So what's happening in China. It's what's happening in many parts of Latin America and other places in the world. Every believer has to be empowered to do the work of the kingdom. And so now I'm making some dramatic statements, okay, just to make a point here. Of course, we're not going to go home and throw out our whole ministry structure right now. But what we have to do is have our ministry structure and then be open to ways that God might want to tweak it or change it. And you know what? Some of our structures over the course of the next couple of years, we're going to realize are not effective. Okay? And sometimes our church structure might need to look a little bit more like this, then this, right? Because there's someone down at the bottom of that structure that has spiritual gifts that are not being utilized, right? And this structure, 
allows for a lot more of that. Now, of course, Paul speaks to the chaos that can ensue in a church when there's no structure, okay? So there has to be some structure. But what's happening is some of these things are just being called into question so that we can make sure we have the best structure, okay? So we, we have to understand this, this change that's occurring. Yes, well, some, as, we're not, some aspects of truth are being questioned. For the church, a lot of it is how do we, how are we, conveying our message how are we discipling how are we growing people in this message and our structures are often being called into question along uh along the way okay um my clicker's not moving any questions on that comments sure that's a great idea um <clears throat> the fact that you don't have to have rows you know you don't have to have rows of seats with a platform with a 65-minute, you know, church service that every five minutes is dictated ahead of time what you're doing and what songs you're going to sing and in what order, okay? Um, so we have some of these packages in which we've, we've conveyed the message of the gospel, which has been our medium, and, and those are good. They're not wrong, but we need to be open to new mediums and changing mediums. As like I said in an earlier workshop, what a lot of young adults are doing is going to one church because it has great worship and a great message. They go to another church because it has a great small group program. And then they go to a home church, a house church, on another night because they really want to rebel against the structure of both of those. Okay? But it's the way that they're trying to figure out how to practice their faith while they're in this earthquake, Right? Because they know this old structure has good in it, but they're not really connecting with it, you know? So they're trying to figure out how do we... So th- those would be mediums. All of those would be mediums. And they're kind of experimenting with different what, ones. What, how do you articulate to encourage them? <coughs> what would be the, the best way to solidify all that? Like, what would be your conversation? Mm-hmm. I think <clears throat> often we viewed faith Spiritual development, faith, ministry, as having a destination. And they view it much more as a process, right? A journey. And so in some ways, I mean, if they're going to Bible-believing, house church, big church, small group, thank God they're in church three times a week, you know? So encouraging them that and really processing, I mean, a lot of it is so conversational. Remember, they're uploading generation. So the way that they learn is through talking about it and engaging it. So having conversations with them, what are you learning in each of these places? How is that informing your faith? What do you feel like you believe and why? You know. So really just having those conversations. But if they're going to three different Bible-believing churches, great. Right. You know. So it's, it's really just helping them process <laughs> what is their spiritual journey in that. And are they reaching places of conviction or decision? You know? Well, and why I ask that? Because it seems to play out in other areas of their life. Mm-hmm. So relationships, yes. jobs. Yes. Everything, and you feel a responsibility yes. if you're discipling somebody to help them to understand. Yes, I think that's great. Mm-hmm. They're, you know, we mm-hmm. get all that. Yes. But also conveying yes. that at right. the end of the day, there there's a responsibility factor mm-hmm. because mm-hmm. you're doing the same thing in relationships. You're doing the same mm-hmm. thing in your job. You're doing mm-hmm. the same thing with school. Yeah. This is how I feel. Yep. So now we're, we're, I mean, I don't want to dovetail too much in this because it starts to talk a lot about millennials. But um, one of the things with millennials is they don't have a realistic understanding of consequences because we've never let them. I mean, my favorite example is, you know, when you fall off your bike, you should get a scraped knee. Mm -hmm. Okay. But they've had knee pads their whole life (laughs) on everything. And so, I mean, at the most basic level, we've not taught them realistic consequences. I mean, the reason I do not like computer games is that I have reset buttons. Okay, and, and so they start to learn there are no consequences. Well, I failed at this game. I just hit the reset, and I start over. And so that they take that mentality then into relationships. Into, so in some cases, it's going to be walking along with them as they start to suffer the consequences of this. In some ways, some are perceptive enough that you can actually have the conversations where you help them think critically about what the consequences are going to be. Um, but, I mean, the reason that millennials are flocking to Bernie Sanders is because he because they don't understand the consequences of things being proposed, right? So, so there's, I mean, this is happening. On, you're absolutely right. It's happening at every level of society. So the thing is, at some point, they're going to start to feel the consequences. Hopefully, we can help them think about them critically. I mean, in your case where you're mentoring people, if you can get them to think about those consequences ahead of time and change their actions, that's the best. Some people have to touch the stove to realize it's hot. You know, so then to have someone there to help them, 
process that. I mean, it's hard. It's messy. Yeah. Okay. Any other questions? So far, comments? Okay. <clears throat> the Shaking of American Christian. Uh, this is another great book, Russell Moore. Um, uh, uh, what's it? Onward, Engaging the Culture Without Losing the Gospel. Okay. Um, the Shaking of American Culture, he says, is no sign that God has given up on American Christianity. In fact, it may be a sign that God is rescuing American Christianity from itself. And, uh, I mean, he's got some really great points, okay? Um, so, it's uh, Russell Moore, it's Onward, I think, um, Engaging the Culture Without Losing the Gospel. Engaging, yeah. Um, so, because sometimes we've gotten so caught up in maintaining our programs and our systems and are the things that we've built and created that we kind of have lost sight of the mission, you know, in the heart. And so I love his perspective on it. Here's the other thing. Uh, Will and Ariel Durant, historians for like 50 years, Pulitzer Prize winners, not Christians, okay? (laughs) Um, And yet they make a comment, I don't have it in this PowerPoint slide, but they make a comment about how uh, society has never maintained a moral fabric without religion which is very interesting as we look at what's unfolding in our culture. I mean, so these are historians who are not Christians who say religion is essential, but that's a side point. They also make this statement. Nations die. Old regions grow arid or suffer other change. Resilient man picks up his tools and his arts and moves on, taking his memories with him. And I think this was one of the most, um, I'm sorry, I've been speaking all day, so I'm a little tired and emotional right now. But um, I think that... um, this has been one of the most freeing quotes that I've read as I've done my research. Because sometimes when you research this stuff, it can get pretty discouraging. And uh, this, this, this quote set me free. Because I came home, I was at the coffee shop, you know, doing all this research. And, I mean, I have, I have two three-year-old girls. I have twins. And, you know, I asked my mom even before, I, you know, we had kids, should I even bring kids into this world? You know, then she's the grandma, so she's like, of course you're going to bring kids into this world because I want grandbabies. But, um, you know, I, was, I, I sometimes wrestle because I'm like, look at all these things that are unfolding. I'm like, God, how do I raise? I mean, we were talking about earlier the trek of raising kids in this culture. You know, it just feels daunting and overwhelming to me. Um, I mean, I see the influence. There are only three, and I already see the influences of culture on them. And um, I came home from this, and I was like, it's not about America. It's not about the American church. It's about the church. Okay? And God has always been in the business of people. So cultures rise and fall. Nations rise and fall. Structures of organized religion rise and fall. Okay? Governments rise and fall. Man has persisted. Okay? When you think of the crazy, crazy things that have happened in history... And yet people always emerge and they rebuild and they reestablish. And so I started thinking about this whole thing differently. As a Christian leader then, what is, what is my goal as we're undergoing this huge cultural transition that's affecting how we view ethics, how we view morality, how we view truth? Okay, what is my goal? I want to make sure that if in my lifetime or my children's lifetime or my grandchildren or great-grandchildren's lifetime, our nation dies. My, this land grows arid, right? And my kids or grandkids or great-grandkids or students or their grandkids are the ones who pick up, as, as the world is burning down around them, pick up their knapsack and run for the, for the hills or wherever it is, and are the ones that rebuild whatever it is that we're going to rebuild, our communities, our churches, our, commu- our nation, whatever it is. What is in that knapsack? What are the things that cannot burn, okay? Because their memories, their values, their convictions, if they lose all else, if their 401ks go away, right, and their houses go into foreclosure, and they lose their jobs, there are some things that nothing can strip from them, right? The things that God has revealed to them. And so what are the things that I want to make sure when I look around me and I'm mentoring those young people, I'm raising my children, I'm discipling people in my church, I'm working with young colleagues at work, 
What are the things that I want to be teaching them? What are the things I want to be asking them? What are the conversations we need to be engaging in? What are the skills I want to make sure they're developing? So that when I'm gone, you know, when we're out of the picture, these are things that they will pick up with them and carry on to their next job, their next church, their family, whatever, and if need it, into the next civilization, you know? So those are the things I think we need. When we think about the 40,000-foot view, you know, we need to be thinking about those things. Now, the nitty-gritty on the ground gets a lot messier, okay? But sometimes it can help us to hold on when we're thinking about that big, um, the, larger, the larger perspective of what's happening. Okay. Um, <clears throat> okay. So let's just end with a couple of, um, a few thoughts on strategies, and then we'll, we'll wrap up with some questions, okay? Because I like to leave us with some things, practical tools, okay? Not just, oh my goodness, this is, you know, all this change is happening. What do we practically do? I feel like one of the most important things we can do right now is ask good questions and listen, okay? I actually just found a quote today that I posted on my Facebook page, and I actually did not, hadn't seen it before. Um, it's, it's this. Speak in such a way that others love to listen to you. Listen in such a way that others love to speak to you. Okay, let me just repeat that because I believe that this is a critical strategy. Speak in such a way that others love to listen to you. Okay, often when we're confronting some of these issues, we come across as judgmental and intolerant, right? Because we've had a mentality in modern culture that we have to speak truth. And if we, if we don't speak truth and someone dies and goes to hell, okay, this is how I grew up as an exer, you know, you're going to be responsible. Their blood is on your hands. So you've got to speak truth loudly and passionately and offensively and just speak truth, okay? And yet we have to speak in a way that people can listen, this generation can listen. And we, when we come out just guns blazing without understanding their cultural context, it's very difficult for them to listen to us. So we have to speak truth out of relationship, out of them knowing that we care for them and that we're invested in their lives. And then we can speak truth in a way that can be heard. And along with that, asking questions and listening, okay? So really asking questions, listening, asking follow-up questions, seeking to understand what is their perspective and why are they doing things. So often, you know, we... We see a young person doing something that we're like, that doesn't make any sense. And instead of saying, stop doing that or why are you doing that? Just, can you explain to me how that works for you? You know, like truly seeking to understand how do we engage this. Um, and then answering the question why, honestly, patiently, and sincerely. And with the tr- church, a lot of times we are not explaining why things are important. Why things matter. In an earlier session, I showed the statistic that uh, 12 to 17-year-olds, more, uh, more 17, 12 to 17-year-olds believe that it is wrong to not recycle than they do view p- pornography. So not recycling is a worse offense than viewing pornography, okay? 13 to 17-year-olds, and it goes up to like 32 or something. Part of the reason for that, though, is that they hear about recycling all the time. They're being told all the time why recycling is important, and it's connected to the community, right? If I don't recycle, I'm hurting the earth, which affects everyone, okay? Versus, um, oh, my PowerPoint just died. Okay, my, I forgot my power cord. That's okay. Um, so with pornography, we're not talking about that that is what fuels the sex industry. They think, I'm on my, I'm on my phone. It doesn't hurt anybody, right? Um, so we need to... We need to find ways to make sure that we're explaining the whys. If we feel passionately about things, why? What are the implications of that? Why is that important? So that they understand uh, the bigger picture. Okay, hold on. Let me find my notes. <laughs> I'm so sorry. Um, okay. Which presentation? <laughs> mm-hmm. Okay, of course I have every presentation I've done except that one. Let's see. Um, Okay, anyways, well, I'll come up a little. <laughs> perfect. Thank you. Thank you. Okay, I don't know if I can remember my whole slide at this point. Okay, perfect. Okay, so uh, let your life. Okay, that's another, yes. So people ask me, like, what's the best mentoring curriculum? Your life. Mm-hmm. Let your life be the, be- the mentoring curriculum. Do not try to come up with a discipleship program for young adults. 
Just walk with them, explaining why you do what you do, engaging with them where they're at, okay? It's the best mentoring, correct? Engage in reverse mentoring, okay? Formally or informally, I love this. We need to learn from each other. So asking them why and letting them teach you. Because, I mean, in this last session I had, I had, <laughs> it was so beautiful, I had a couple of millennials in here, and one of them was saying, she leads their children's program at their church, and she's like, I, I don't care about checking off all the boxes. I don't care if we have attendance sheets and that we have everybody leaves with a coloring sheet and that we've done everything on the schedule for the day in the curriculum. I don't care. Because okay, that's a structure, right? It's a process. She doesn't care about that. She's like, I want to make sure that I engage and interact with every kid and have a discussion with them about the Bible and why it's relevant to their life. She's like, but all my older volunteers want to make sure that we get through the whole craft and everyone can take home a completed craft, right? Which is very much a modern mindset. We're checking off the boxes. As a mom, you know what? I want millennials teaching my kids. I don't care if they do a craft. Okay, I want my three-year-olds, like they did two weeks ago, to come home and tell me about the tabernacle. Okay, I'm like, yes, okay, I don't even know what the tabernacle is. Okay, so this is where millennials have so much to offer because they don't care about the structures and the systems. They're like, let's just get down and let's learn truth. So when they grab truth, they're like, let's teach truth. I'm going to get down with a three-year-old and teach them truth, you know? I'm like, I love you. Bless you. Whoever's church she's in, you guys are blessed. Okay. Oh, I, your phone just died. Um <clears throat> I'm so sorry, guys. My brain, I'm feeling, I did, I did training all day yesterday, and then I've done all sessions all day today, so I'm sorry. I feel like I'm a little floating here. Okay. Um, ask questions. Seek to understand. Identify what is tradition. Okay. So identify what is tradition versus what is truth. And this is really like, is the house that's falling off the cliff, okay, that's not truth. Those are just traditions. Those are structures. What are the things that we're doing in our ministries that are just structures that it's okay? It's not the end of the world. It's not going to hurt the kingdom if those things go away. What programs or systems? And then what are the things that are true that are non-negotiable? So when young people are coming at us and they're wanting to engage in ministry and they're wanting to try things, you know, sometimes we're holding to the, the house that's falling off the cliff and we're losing them because they're running for higher ground, you know? So we need to let the house fall, and we need to just look at where can we come together. And then, like I said, the knapsacks, making sure we're identifying what are the things, those truths then, that truth that we want to make sure is in their knapsack. Those ministry practices and those leadership skills and those things that we know supersede culture, okay, and that they're going to need to take with them to wherever they go. And then make sure we're focusing on those things not forcing them to check boxes and do things that don't matter and are not going to matter. I strongly believe that millennials as leaders are going to face challenges that their, tra- their leaders, mentors cannot even imagine. Okay? Millennials are going to have to lead in context and face challenges that we have never had to deal with and we will not have to deal with. So if we equip them to lead the way we lead, we are not setting them up for success. What we need to look at is how has God designed them, and then how do we make them stronger in that? How do we make sure that they have skills and characteristics that are going to strengthen them, but not force them to lead exactly the way that we lead, if that makes sense? I was, I, just an example, I was talking to a young missionary, and I'm like, how do you explain to your peer group that you're going to be a missionary to unreached peoples? Because that's completely unacceptable, right, with millennials? Yes. They're not, your friends are not going to support you in that. He's like, I don't. I say I'm a humanitarian worker working with isolated peoples. Okay? So they're learning ways to navigate. Now, an older person would say, well, you're copying out. You're not confronting. They're like, no. I know that this is the most effective way for me to reach them and the people I'm called to reach. I've got to build the relationship first, then I can speak truth. Okay? The same way we have to lead to them. So really allowing them to lead the way that God is calling them to. Okay, any final questions? Yeah. Is there any particular I mean, I don't know. That's kind of, that's kind of a hard question. What I have found as I've done consulting 
is that Xers are very good at bridging the gap. So often you'll have programs or groups where you have a boomer leading it or a millennial leading it and it's just failing and an Xer steps in and Xers are somehow able to relate to both. And so um, that's not always the case, but I found that a lot. So finding ways to like leverage your Xers because they, tend, they understand that some of this stuff is not intuitive so they can relate to the boomer's frustration. And at the same time, they've been exposed to enough of it that they understand the millennial's perspective and how it's a part of their world, you know? So yeah, that's kind of cool. Any other questions? Great, thank, yeah, go ahead. Education. Education is probably, I would say education, between technology and education, those are the two biggest, I would say. Yep. And by education, do you mean a, an approach to education, a philosophy of edu education mm -hmm. that eliminates uh, yep. principal It's both. So, I mean, you have schools now that are going to no-fail policies, right? Mm -hmm. Where students cannot fail. We're stripping all responsibility from the students, and it's all in the teachers, okay? So some of it is the way we're teaching, but it's also then the philosophy. So we're teaching, I mean, I mean, we teach, I, there's cartoons that I will not let my three-year-olds watch because of the social messages. I mean, they have a very short, limited list, and they get to watch them for a very short, limited time, okay, because I study this stuff. But, um, so it is, it's both philosophy as well as strategy that's affecting it, yeah. Someone else over here had a question, yeah. Yeah, I mean, we don't know right now, okay? And here's the thing, like, I've talked to, eth I've talked, I've talked to ethics professors who are just drowning, right? Because we can't, they can't even teach ethics in colleges anymore. But here's the thing, here's the thing. We don't know but the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit leads and guides into all truth and brings conviction, okay? And here's part of the reason where I think God is, like, saying, okay, stop it. <laughs> stop it. You're trying to do what I'm supposed to do. Okay? You start to rely on your strategies and your curriculums and your methods to do the work that only the Holy Spirit can do. So I think our best thing to do is get on our faces and intercede. Okay? Because, and then watch where the Holy Spirit is working and move there. That's what I told the ministry leader earlier who was talking to me about how to reorganize the ministry. I'm like, I don't know what to tell you. Where's God working in your church? That's what you need to be doing. Okay? So look where God's working and then do that. Okay, so in every church, it's going to look different. With every group of people, it's going to look different because the Holy Spirit is going to stir it. And we got to stop putting all of our ministry frameworks on top of everything and saying this is the way it's going to be done. You know, and that's what's happening in this transition. And it's freaky, I know, you know, because there's no stability or certainty in it. You know, just the certainty of our faith. So, okay, let me just uh, pray really quick to end uh, and we'll go. God, give us your eyes to see where you are working. Lord, let us align our strategies, our methods, our perspectives, our efforts with you and your work, Lord. Forgive us for the times where we've tried to put our own ways of doing things into your work. God, you know it's been out of the best of intentions, but just please help us to step back, to watch where you're working and to engage there in the way that you would have us to engage, that we may Stand in that unshakable kingdom, God, as the world is shaking around us. Bless each individual in this group. Empower them wherever you've placed them. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you, guys. Have a great afternoon.